Welcome to Vibrant Potential. I'm Dr. Chris Frickman, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Phil Maffetone. We get into all kinds of awesome stuff in this interview, everything from barefoot running. Dr. Phil Maffetone was one of, like, literally one of the first original barefoot runners back in the early 80s. Uh, he has coached people like Mark Allen and Dave Scott, who are uh, huge Ironman people from the early 90s. Dr. Maffetone is a chiropractor. He is now retired and he's focusing on uh, writing and some of his other projects, a lot into some heart rate training that he does, as well as fat adaption and like talking about uh, diets and how to improve glucose metabolism and, and all kinds of stuff, whether you're interested in endurance sports and, and how that, how diets and heart rate can affect your performance and your training, or whether you're not not into that at all and you just are interested in improving your health as, as much as you can, this is definitely a gem of an interview. So let's get right into it. Welcome to Vibrant Potential. We provide you with everything you need to know to overcome stress, fatigue, and chronic health challenges, as well as optimizing your performance in fitness, relationship, and business. We use integrative health solutions and functional medicine strategies, including brain-based approaches, inspired fitness tips, emotional intelligence coaching, and spiritual growth techniques, so you can live the life you want, connect deeply with others, and fulfill your vibrant potential. Your host is functional medicine expert, genetic biohacker, and triathlon coach, Dr. Chris Frickman. Okay, hi guys. This is Dr. Chris Frickman here, and I am with Dr. Phil Maffetone. Phil, thank you so much for giving us some of your time this morning. Chris, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Awesome. I'm just going to dive right in because I have so many questions that I want to ask. Um, so you've been espousing the benefits of barefoot running for longer than anyone that I know of. I'm wondering if you could just kind of give us a couple of bullet points. What are the benefits of going barefoot? Well, uh, there's many of them. Uh, one of the most important is that it's a great therapy. Just being barefoot will help your foot become healthier from a muscular standpoint, from a circulatory standpoint, just from an overall function standpoint. And the feet are our foundation. So the feet will influence the rest of the body in a very significant way. Every time we get up and walk or run, work out, the, the brain gets so much information from the feet in terms of letting it know where the body is and how the body needs to adapt and what really the big problem is, and, and I got into barefoot uh, walking, running, barefoot, just being barefoot as a therapy in the early, the very early 1980s. And that occurred because there was a, a big shift at that time in the, the sports shoe industry. They went from having very flat, very thin, non-supporting shoes to 
this idea that thicker is better and putting all kinds of arch supports, generic arch supports. Uh, and uh, as soon as I saw that, I saw more injuries and started talking about the importance of being barefoot to recover from wearing those shoes. Okay, got it. So for you, I think in the you know in the in the media we talk about barefoot running, but for you, being barefoot is not just for runners; it's essentially for everyone. Correct. We've gotten into such a bad habit with our feet that literally many people get up in the morning, put their shoes on, and they keep their shoes on all day long at work, at home, and they don't take them off until they go to bed at night. And our feet never get a chance to get the natural stimulation that they were meant to have. And that's a real deficiency, just like any other deficiency, nutritional deficiency or movement deficiency, which is really what it is. The bottoms of the feet, for example, have a lot of nerve endings and they need to sense the ground. And if we have shoes on, the feet don't do that as well. The feet can't transmit the information from the ground to the brain. And then the brain isn't sure how to adapt the body for the terrain we're on, whether it's uh, hard concrete or uneven surfaces. You know, it's, uh, it's important to be without shoes as much of the time as possible. Yeah, I'm a huge believer of that. In fact, uh, sometimes I'll even be adjusting patients and I you know, I've got my uh, my tie and my shirt on and everything. I look pretty professional, except, uh, oh, why aren't you wearing shoes? <laughs> yeah, it's a great situation to be in because you will also be able to <clears throat> evaluate patients better because your tactile senses in your in your hands, especially, will function better because your feet are are happier. If I could use that generic word. Yeah, right. So along those lines, what's your take on like minimalist shoes or zero drop shoes, that kind of stuff? Well, I think it's a it's a marketing gimmick. You know, the the shoes that were made before the early 80s were all minimalist. They were all except for for a lot of dress shoes that that especially, you know, women's shoes, uh, the high heels, but all the sports shoes before then were minimalist shoes. They didn't have a lot of thickness to them. They were, uh, many of them were zero drop. They, they didn't use any of these terms back then because all shoes were that way. And then the, the idea, which was strictly a marketing idea by the shoe industry to experiment with uh, different materials and different thicknesses, putting air in the heels, putting supporting devices in the in the heels and in the medial arches and all kinds of crazy things strictly um, from a marketing standpoint because the the shoe industry did not do research they don't do research on humans they do research on machines so this was strictly a marketing tactic and it worked really well they sold a lot more shoes um, but unfortunately more people were getting injured yeah, I gotcha. In my practice, I've had people that'll come in and they'll ask for different sorts of orthotics. And I've certainly met people that feel that they've really been helped by orthotics. I was actually first introduced to your work when I was in chiropractic school and uh, you came out with a book. Is it okay if I mention the title? Sure. Yeah. Fix Your Feet, I believe was the title. And that came out 
just a little bit before I graduated chiropractic school, actually. And in chiropractic school, there were, you know, there was sort of essentially two camps. Most of the people falling in the camp of, you know, orthotics are great and uh, we can we can customize orthotics for, for any foot and that's a really good thing. And uh, I read your book and it just really resonated with me that, hey, you can just essentially walk around barefoot and that will give you great benefits. And I've seen in my practice, you know, for the past 10 plus years that I've had people come in with low back pain and not do... I mean, certainly I'm giving them adjustments and things too. I work a lot with nutrition and stuff, but I've seen enough people to notice the effects that if you help people to see that, hey, this is natural to be without shoes and be barefoot, people will get over low back pain and even things that seem bizarre like shoulder pain or, or, or headaches and stuff can sometimes go away from that. Sure. Uh, and I've seen the same thing. I saw it in practice when I was in practice. Uh, and now that I'm writing about it, lecturing about it, uh, doing podcasts about it, the feedback I get from just that simple act of taking off your shoes as much uh, of the time as you can. And, and many people can work without their shoes on. They don't have to wear shoes at work. But certainly when you come home, uh, the shoes should come off. Uh, best off even before you come in the main part of your house. But yeah, shoulder problems, headaches, jaw problems, um, you know, of course, knee problems are very common because from my experience, most of the knee problems I've seen in practice originate from problems in the feet. But the, the foundation of your body is that, you know, stability in the, in the foot when it hits the ground and it affects the spine, it affects the head, it affects everything. So some amazing stories from from people who have made that simple change. Awesome. Does anyone pop into your head in particular? Well, the headache story is one that comes to mind when we talk about unusual cases. It was uh, a patient I had seen many years ago. She had been to, uh, I think, eight or nine different professionals uh, from uh, her family doctor to a neurologist, to a, a variety of therapists, physical therapy, massage therapy, chiropractors, uh, and on and on. And she had a very unusual pattern of headaches, and um, it would move from one side to the other certain days. And, you know, it was even recommended that she see a psychiatrist. But obviously, you know, when I saw her, What's good about seeing a patient who has seen so-called everybody, you know, they've ruled out a lot of things and it kind of makes your job easier because now they've probably ruled out just about everything you can think of. Right. And they've had imaging. They've had the lab yeah. tests done. Oh, and- yeah. Everything. She had she had CAT scans and uh, yeah, so many tests with everything coming back normal. This was, um, I think, around 1990. So the the thickness trend in sports shoes had really uh was hitting Reached a peak, its peak yeah it, it was the 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 shoes that were coming out were just it was just insane it was like wearing the worst kind of high heels you can imagine and she was in a job where she um wore these things all day long and she literally didn't take them off you know same same story she put them on in the morning didn't take them off at night I had her take off her shoes. 
And I looked at her posture with shoes off compared to shoes on, and it was dramatically different. And I could see that <clears throat> numerous um, problems could be addressed therapeutically, but as soon as she put her shoes on, the problems would come back. And so I had her, um, I, I really didn't do anything therapeutic other than recommend uh, that she go without shoes more of the time and find a thinner pair of shoes to replace the one she had. And then I would see her in two weeks. Well, I, I got a phone call from her several days later, and she said it's the first time her headaches were gone for, for that many days, but her calves were hurting. So I, I had her come in sooner, and it was just that her muscles were not used to being in flat shoes, and it really caused a little bit of distress in her calf muscles and that went away in a few more days yeah they've probably been they were probably short for years they certainly were and that's a problem with with the shoes <clears throat> especially today people going from those thick shoes to something flat you've got to do it sometimes slowly and let your let your muscles adapt it could it could take a week or two but again the way you start is just by getting rid of your shoes and being barefoot more often Okay, that was actually my next question was, how do you recommend that if people are interested in, in barefoot, either just barefoot living, barefoot running, anything like that, how do they ease into it? I want to just intercede really quick, though, and, and just say the tight calves. For the listeners, just think about this in your head. If you think about most people are familiar with their hip flexors being tight if they're people that sit all the time, you know, over the road truck drivers, people that sit at the computer all day, your hips are flexed. So your psoas muscle or your hip flexors, those are going to be tight. They're going to be short. Now, if you don't get up and move around periodically and, and do those types of things, that can lead to pulling imbalances, low back pain, all kinds of different things. Well, think about wearing these shoes. Most shoes have they have this heel lift, right? That's that's just common now. Phil, you're talking about back in the day when uh, you know, it's like Oh, when I was a kid, you know, we didn't, you know, nobody had heel lifts, but nowadays that's that's the if you don't specifically go buy shoes that don't have a lift, you probably have a lift in your heel. And so then it's sort of like you're walking around on high heels and your calves are going to be shorter than what they naturally would be if you were just standing there barefoot. Right. And and that's a it's you're exactly right in in the analogy with wearing high heels. It's not as extreme, but it's very similar. You're putting the foot in a position that's like a high heel where your heel is higher and so the muscles in the calf uh, and you're going to trigger other muscles, but the muscles in the calf have to get shorter to keep you in that position. After a while, they just stay that way. It's a tough thing to change it back. Some people can do it quite easily. Uh, I would say most people who are generally active and relatively healthy can just take their shoes off and walk around barefoot without any problems. I have run into people who can't do that. They, they cannot take their shoes off and walk around because their calves start hurting. Something starts hurting. And it's most likely not because they need support, but most likely that they've damaged their muscles and they need rehabilitation. And I should say that when I was in practice, I would occasionally use a soft orthotic for a, a patient, but it was very rare. And it was usually someone who was 
80 years old and had a history of a stroke or had some significant disability and it was just we just weren't going to get uh, normal function and to allow them to, to move the little bit that they were able to move anyway, that's what was required. In a few athletes, I've used orthotics to get them over a, a serious condition. In those cases, sometimes I would use them for two, three, four weeks and then and then take them away. Most of the time, what I did in practice was take orthotics away. And, it, you know, you get a reputation for doing that, good and bad. It's bad from the standpoint of the podiatrist out there g- giving the orthotics or companies that, that sell them and, and uh, promote them. And, you know, in the chiropractic profession, there are companies that heavily promote the use of orthotics. And that's why there's so much interest by students in particular and young doctors about using orthotics because it's a... You know, it seems like a logical thing on paper, but as you get into practice and start looking at what's really happening, you a, a lot of a lot of people do away with them. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to switch gears up a little bit here. I would love to hear a little bit about the Maffetone method. I was just finding out that there's a new book out by the author of Born to Run. And it's called Natural Born Heroes. And it sounds like you were either in it. I haven't, I actually just bought it now that I just found out about it because I liked uh, Born to Run. So I have not read this book yet. I will have read it in a, probably by the time this uh, podcast comes out. But it sounds like you're either in it or at least it was in part inspired by some of your work. Can you uh, talk about that? I think both. I think I'm in it quite a bit, and and I haven't read it yet either. It's on my list, my growing list. Um, (laughs) And much of the storyline ties back to me in in the modern-day world. Chris McDougall does a great job talking about the freedom fighters in Greece during World War II and how they were able to use their fat-burning capability to get enough energy to do the amazing things they did. And and then he's always coming back to the modern era and saying, well, here's, you know, here's somebody who's doing that today. Here are the athletes that have benefited from that and so forth. So I'm not sure how much of me is in there. I'm told quite a bit, but um, it's interesting. Chris is such a good writer. Born to Run was such a great book. And this one has jumped to the top of the New York Times bestseller list also. But I'm I'm looking forward to to reading it as well. Very cool. Well, um, regardless of how much you're actually in it, I'd love to hear a little bit about what the concepts are or the philosophies behind you know the the whole uh, McDougal talks about these principles that people have been using from Crete back in the uh, Second World War to Mark Allen, who is a six-time world champ Ironman athlete. And he's someone that, that I know you've worked with. And I remember, you know, because I'm, I'm in a triathlon, mostly for myself and my athletes, I've never been huge into like the who's who of triathlon really. But Mark Allen, you, I mean, you can't really be a triathlete and not know the name Mark Allen. And I remember reading a story about him at one point about how he was it was somewhere along his training he had kind of like switched up what he was going to do and he he started kind of going with this 
I'm just going to make up a word really quick, like a more of a low end, like aerobic kind of work as opposed to like super hard, like, you know, run as hard as you can until you puke kind of a, a running. He, it sounded like he took this approach of like, I'm just going to run and sort of like a zone two kind of a, you know, sort of easy running. And over time, he was able to get more and more efficient, probably more efficient movements, but also more efficient at burning fat. And, and so he was able to actually get faster and faster and faster without really increasing his rate of perceived exertion so much. And then as I'm poking around on the internet, it appears to me like you had sort of a pivotal role in that. Can you talk to talk to us about that? Sure. I met Mark uh, in 1983. I had a, a little camp, uh, athletic camp in San Diego, and I was doing this in different cities around the world. And uh, Mark uh, came to one of these and um, he liked what I had to say about burning more fat because it, it will give you more energy than you can possibly need. And, uh, of course, uh, not just in athletics, but the human body requires a lot of energy. And the more energy we have, the more we can do, and the more we can do whatever we're doing a lot better. Mark gravitated to that quite well, because he had been training hard, getting hurt, getting worn out frequently, and just wasn't able to win the, the the races like um his his friends were doing and i put a heart monitor on mark and ran around the track with him and i said okay this is as fast as you should be training and he just laughed and because it was about an 820 pace 820 per mile and he had been training typically two minutes or or more faster than that every day and i said well you know, let's just uh, stay at this pace. And as the weeks go by, you should be able to get faster and faster at the same heart rate. And certainly that's what happened. Mark eventually got to his 630 pace that he was training every day uh, at the same heart rate and, and kept getting faster. He ended up at a, about a 520 pace at that same 155, which I think is where we started, uh, 155 heart rate. Eventually, we, we, got, we brought the heart rate down as he got older, but he just kept getting faster. And Mark is, you know, he's, he, the six-time Ironman championship is the tip of the iceberg. His career was really amazing when you look at the, the races that he did all over the world every year. He had a string of 20, I think it was 20 victories, and he would only go into major races, so so many things. And and I think that's what Chris McDougal was trying to do is to say, look at what <clears throat> look at what these Greek freedom fighters were doing and, and here are some modern day people who have done similar things. And it a lot of it comes down to getting the energy that the human body is supposed to be able to generate, which comes from fat. And the more fat we can burn, the less excess fat we store. And the more energy we have, and it's not just energy for our muscles, but energy for everything, literally everything. I mean, our brain, our entire body, the metabolism, hormone balance, intestinal function, all this is very, very important. And if we don't have enough fat burning, which the muscles take a lot, then we tend to be 
missing out on energy and missing out on overall human performance. Absolutely. Okay, so I know we're you know we're talking about this idea of essentially training at an at an easy pace and being able to get faster with that, getting more efficient, burning more fat. Can you give my listeners any specifics about how you have people go about this other than, hey, just run easy? Well, there's two components. There's the the nutritional component, which is basically the foods that we eat. And, and to just quickly give the bottom line there, it's avoiding junk food. The exercise component, the physical activity component is also important because we want to develop the parts of us that burn fat for energy, and that is the aerobic muscle fibers. Most of us are endowed with a lot of, we're all endowed with a lot of aerobic muscle fibers, and they're mixed in all of the muscles. So whatever exercises we do, we want to make sure we train the aerobic system, those aerobic muscle fibers, because they're the ones that burn fat for energy. They're also the ones that support our joints. They're the ones that have long-term energy, so we can support our joints and have long-term energy no matter what we're doing. <clears throat> they are the ones that bring circulation into the, the muscles. They're, they're the red, those red, so-called red, slow-twitch aerobic muscle fibers are well endowed with circulation. So people often talk about having poor circulation, which is a very serious problem. And if your circulation is not good, it means your aerobic muscles are not working well. But these muscles also are very important for antioxidant activity. So we, we know how important antioxidants are in, in terms of eating foods high in antioxidants. But those antioxidants do their actions in those red aerobic muscle fibers. And so there's many reasons to get them working. But one of the important ones is that they burn more fat and they give us a huge amount of energy. The question is, well, how do I do that? Slower rather than faster in terms of exercise. When you're finished an aerobic workout, you should almost feel like you haven't done anything. That's what the aerobic system feels like when you stimulate it with exercise. If you want to use your heart rate as a guide, which is what I recommend, because we've been we've all been trained in a no pain, no gain society. You know, we we look at people who are working out and we have these images that we should all be doing what Mark Allen tried to do in the beginning, which was kill ourselves in every workout. You know, some of it is, well, you've got to burn a lot of calories. Well, that's that's a, a big myth. You have to burn a lot of fat calories, not a lot of sugar calories. So if you work out really hard and get your heart rate up high, you're going to be burning a lot of sugar calories. You don't want to do that. You want to burn fat calories. So training slow builds the aerobic muscle fibers. They're the ones that burn fat. And you can, uh, I, I developed a 180 formula and people can search that on the internet or go to my website, there's an article called the 180 formula, and they can plug in their age, their level of health, and their level of fitness, and it'll come up with a f quite accurate heart rate, basically as accurate as I could come up if I evaluated somebody. 
And that's the what I call the maximum aerobic heart rate. So that's the heart rate that you want to train at or below to optimally build that fat-burning aerobic system. Okay, so the 180 formula is, so it makes me think of the old uh, 220 minus your age for, for, that's for max heart rate, and that's not a method I really endorse anyway, but no, that, no. That's, that's an old sort of like, I think that's what most people think of is like, okay, how am I going to figure out my max heart rate? I think the, the best way to figure out max heart rate is to do a protocol in which you actually reach your maximum heart rate if you really want right. to know that. But the 180 formula is not to find your max heart rate, it's to find what you're calling the maximum aerobic heart rate. Are you familiar with the you know with the whole um, I can't I don't know if there's actually a name for it but the general method that I use is sort of like zone training so I do like to find someone's theoretical max heart rate and then I kind of base their lactate threshold between zone four and zone five and that, so there's like a a five zone kind of tiered approach to uh, one zone one would be easy recovery zone two is aerobic three is strong aerobic and so forth are you familiar with that methodology i've seen it evolve over the years when i developed the 180 formula there were no zones and i established terminology that was aerobic and anaerobic you know it's amazing how little consensus there is in science when it comes to exercise physiology. There's no consensus about aerobic and anaerobic. There's no consensus, certainly about the zones. There's no consensus about low, moderate, and high intensity. You know, how, what is moderate intensity versus high intensity? There's no consensus. It leaves athletes and everybody else confused about what to do. So, what I've done is just say, look, there's aerobic and a anaerobic. You can be at a high aerobic level or a medium or a low, but th there's aerobic and anaerobic. And if you want to train your body to build the aerobic system and burn more fat and develop better endurance, you have to train the aerobic system first. And then once you do that, you can go on and build more speed and power and strength by developing the anaerobic system. And then there's different levels of that. But you know, keep it simple. So that's, that's always been my approach. I've watched the zone evolution take place from, uh, I think people were starting to talk about that in the mid eighties. Yeah. And there's more than one too. Yeah. I mean, like, like you said, there's not a, a consensus. So different organizations, different coaches, different doctors come up with like different sort of ideas. And sometimes sometimes they're really helpful and, and sometimes less. So I think whatever model you're using, what you have to, you know, a coach is always going to have to remember or, or an athlete, if they're self-coached, has to, has to just realize that they're all just models. None of them are actually true. And uh, right. we need to just, you know, use the model, apply the model as best we can to, but then make sure that we're, we're looking at real world results. And stuff. Yeah. And that's the key that you, you just, you just hit the nail on the head, you know, and, and <clears throat> the Maffetone method is a very flexible approach to getting healthy and fit. I don't have a, there's no dogma. I don't have a diet. I don't have a, an ex exercise protocol. Don't you know if you uh, patent a diet, 
you can make tons of money though. I heard, I heard that. <laughs> I heard. <laughs> it's still oh, diet man. books are still the the best sellers, uh, other than the sexy novels. Um, they're still the best selling books out there, and they come up with new ones every, literally every week. But what I what I insist on is evaluating yourself to see if whatever it is you're doing is actually making you more healthy and more fit. And for an athlete, that does not include just seeing, are you now able to race better? Because that can be misleading. It's not, can you get done a workout with your friends and still be alive? It's not, well, I must be getting better because I could run farther. Well, you know, that's misleading as well. You know, an overtrained athlete will often perform their best right before they crash. So yeah, or or die. Um, or, or die. And most it, people have heard of someone. Yeah. I actually knew someone that was, uh, you know, trained for marathons, triathlons, stuff like that. And, you know, he's in his upper 40s and died of a heart attack. And everyone yeah. was like, you know, oh my God, that's crazy. How'd that happen? Yeah. So I think you're speaking to that difference between health and fitness. Yeah, very, very important. Even an injury, you know, if you have a knee problem, then whatever it is you're doing is wrong. Maybe it's the wrong shoes. Maybe you're training too hard. Maybe it's a combination of things. Maybe your diet's not right. I want people to know that they're getting healthier Sure, if your signs and symptoms that are abnormal are going away, that's great. But I want to measure it. So can you, for example, run at a faster pace at the same submax heart rate, at the same MAF heart rate or any submax heart rate? Can you perform better from a submax standpoint? And it's a good objective measure. And if you can do that month after month, then most likely what you're doing is working pretty well. So how do sprints, I, I love, I'm going to admit this to you right now. I love sprints. I think sprints, in fact, one of my go-to workouts that I'll, that I'll recommend for people and I'll have them like ease into it if they're not, if they're not in a certain state of fitness, but I love recommending barefoot hill sprints. So find a grassy hill, you know, where it's, it's soft ground. And, uh, I like going up the hill for people that aren't, uh, that aren't used to sprinting. It's a little less impact, but, um, where do you think sprinting and like high intensity interval training, does that have a place somewhere or do you just think go aerobic? Um, I think it, it has a place somewhere, but it, you, you've got to drop that into someone's schedule at the right time. The first thing they have to do is build the aerobic system and you cannot build a good aerobic system if you're also sprinting. It just, it's not compatible. And I think part of that is because people are often so aerobically deficient that any stress and, and sprinting is a stress. So really the question is, can you tolerate more stress in your life? And if you can, yeah, all exercise is stress. Yeah. If you can, if you can tolerate that kind of workout and you've built your aerobic system, then uh, I think it's a great, it's a great workout. But what happens too often and, and again, there's a social phenomenon going on here is people, you know, go out with a group of friends to to run or bike and it becomes a competition. 
And so every workout becomes a very high intensity workout. And that's, that's when there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely know what you mean. I mean, I have the best of intentions for myself, but even, even I go out and go out with a group of cyclists and it's like, I don't want to get dropped by, by everyone. So then I'm, then I'm pushing it maybe harder and I don't want to just be the slacker. So I got to get out front and pull sometimes too. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really easy to let your ego get in the way. And, and it's not just even ego. It's like you're out there partly to have fun and socialize too. So you want to hang with the group. So yeah, it's, right, that can be right. tricky. There's a lot of, there's a lot of components. And, you know, if you have a good aerobic system, you can tolerate that. And I should say that athletes, and when I, when I uh, early in practice, um, or in the in the eighties, I think I started gathering data, and I had a large group of runners, two hundred and twenty three runners that I followed, and seventy six percent of them, uh, they all built a an aerobic base. They trained three to six months exclusively at their max aerobic heart rate, so they trained relatively slow. Seventy six percent of them performed a personal best. 5k race after that period and i've just seen that case history time and time again with athletes beginner athletes who compete and professional athletes who compete mike pig when i started working with triathlete mike pig he spent 18 months building his aerobic system and had the best 18 months of his professional career winning a lot of races actually his his uh first time around building the aerobic system he spent six months doing it and then he was supposed to race a big race in uh in asia somewhere and he just felt like he hadn't done anything because he hadn't trained hard everything was easy he didn't want to go he said why am i going i'm not you know i'm not fit and he eventually got on the plane and went to this race and he won it and not only did he win it, but he beat Mark Allen, who was second. So the aerobic system is a powerful ally if you're an endurance athlete, because in a race, most of your energy comes from the aerobic system. And also, most of our injuries are injuries that occur in the anaerobic muscle fibers, those fast twitch fibers. So we can easily overdo that. And there are some very good studies, you know, they, they showed that CrossFit has an injury rate of 74%. <laughs> and and, oh, and 7% of those injuries required surgery. So, so you know, as long as you're listing a statistic, what does that mean? 74% of people that ever do CrossFit will get injured at some point? Is well, that they, that yeah, they looked at a, a large um, number, and I can't remember the number, but they looked at a large number of, of uh, people who were doing CrossFit, and the injury rate was 74.6, I think, um, percent. Um, and that, that was published in one of the medical journals. And, and 7% of those injuries were severe enough to require surgery. That's a, that's a pretty sad statistic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, right now I'm 38 years old. I mean, I'm very active. I'm very fit. You know, I just love being active. I love doing different stuff. And I, I do a lot of endurance training. You know, I do, I race triathlons and, and I've done runs and I, I love cycling, but I'm, I'm a pretty heavy guy. 
I have a lot of muscle on my bones for for the typical endurance athlete. And I, I, I started doing CrossFit, a, I don't know if it was two or, well, no, more than that. Geez, three or four years ago or something. I, I guess I don't even remember now. And I, I fell in love with it instantly. Like, this is so much fun. I've already got this endurance uh, base, like that, because from all my endurance training, and I'm just naturally a strong person. So, like, and I had never, I didn't even know what a deadlift was, but I had, you know, I walked in and it was just, you know, they showed me how to do these things and I was instantly really good at it. And so that was a ton of fun. And, um, I did that for about a year and a half and kind of got more and more and more into it the whole time. And then I was doing the CrossFit games, not the, you know, I mean, I didn't make it like super far, like nationally or whatever, but I was just competing at a, whatever they call the local level uh, in the CrossFit games. And I was doing decently at, at my local level. I, this is not CrossFit's fault. I just want to say that like, this is my fault, but my competitive nature just got the best of me. And I started doing a movement that probably shouldn't, in retrospect, my belief now is that it probably shouldn't be set up as a competitive event to see how many deadlifts you can do as quick as possible at a, you know, at a given weight or whatever. And uh, I ended up herniating uh, one of my lumbar discs. And, um, and later, later that year, I, I herniated another one. So again, I I don't blame CrossFit for that. That was that was my own like you know I should I was I was going a little too hard, pushing it a little too hard, and and I knew it, and I went as I was doing it anyway. But yeah, it can happen to to anyone. So. It can, and it does. And I I have heard that story, and it's not just CrossFit. CrossFit is just one of the many high intensity anaerobic, no pain, no gain approaches that are not necessarily bad if you keep keep everything in balance with the body but when you become the kind of person who gets into these activities and then you you just go along with it and and um all of a sudden you find yourself down the river and you realize you're in trouble and if you find that out before you get hurt that's great but a lot of times it's it's the injury that alerts people that there's a problem and um, your story is is not unusual. People sometimes get serious injuries. And, um, you know, I'm not opposed to the hard workout, but I'm opposed to doing it all the time and doing it without having a good aerobic base that you come back to on a regular basis. So you might do, for example, you might spend three, four, five, six months building an aerobic system, and then you add some hard training, whatever you want to call it, whatever system you want to use, it's all actually very similar. And you do that for a short period of time, and then you maybe a month in some cases, depending on what your goals are. If you're in a sport that's, you know, if you're if you're a football player or a power lifter, then you're going to have a season where you're going to be doing more anaerobic stuff. But you do your anaerobic stuff after your aerobic base, and then after your anaerobic stuff, before you get hurt, you go back to your aerobic base building again where you don't do any anaerobic training and then you cycle through the year and through the years that way and it's a it's a very healthy way to do it i love that i'm talking with you and you know this is a time where the ketogenic diet and the paleo diets and the 
low carb, high fat diet and the perfect diet. There's like, all, you know, all these different variances or whatever, but a lot of them are talking about, and some of them talk about exercise and some of them more just talk about the diet, but they're largely talking about utilizing more fat and this sort of like crazy phenomena they they a lot of people feel like it's it's uh bizarre uh if especially if you were around in the 90s when when everyone said don't eat fat but you know now it's like hey eat more fat if they're healthy fats and you'll actually lose body fat and you know you've been you've been just doing that work with with clients and patients for years and, and decades even. And um, I think that's awesome. So one last transition here because I'm, I'm we're already coming up on time, but I, I have to ask before we get going about, you know, your idea, you said one of the biggest things people can do is, is don't eat junk food. What's junk food? Well, that's the, the big question. Um, and, and I always say to people, if, if they have to ask, they're probably eating it. <laughs> um, you know, back in the seventies, I was doing this and to say to an athlete, you know, don't, don't eat pasta and all that bread and, and dessert, which was a typical pre-race dinner. And when I started lecturing at, you know, the Boston Marathon Expo, where they would have these dinners that was white pasta, white bread with white cake for dessert, you know, they, they thought I was a wacko. And of course they would say, well, if you, if you're not eating all that pasta, what do you eat? And I say, well, more protein and a lot of fat. And then they knew I was really off the deep end, but you know, the trends have come and gone and I'm hoping that, and I've said this before, I'm hoping that the current trends, which seems to be uh, more powerful with more scientific backing and more logical talk is going to be something that stays around because people really benefit from burning more body fat. And the important part is, sure, it's is eating more healthy fats, and I emphasize healthy fats, but more important is not eating junk food. And junk food basically is any food that has refined products in there, especially carbohydrates. So it's anything with white flour or sugar, which is, you know, and I used to name all the products to to the patient, I'd say, okay, I don't want you to eat any more bread or cakes or crackers or yogurt with the sugar in it or pasta or, you know, and they'd stop me at some point and say, that's all I eat. And I'd say, well, that's why you are the way you are. And it's not just about body fat, but today, probably 75% of the people throughout the world are over fat. We can talk about obesity, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's the over fat problem that's a very significant one. And by by avoiding those carbohydrates, we allow our body to shift into its natural state, which is burning a lot more fat for energy. It's really as simple as that. So many of the products, and, and if you if you have to read a label, then there's a good chance that that's junk food. Uh, If you're buying packaged foods, frozen foods, canned foods, good chance that they're junk food versus buying a bunch of fresh vegetables and fresh fruits, buying uh, some meats and fish, buying some some good, healthy dairy 
and you know you, those are those are natural foods that <clears throat> do not have the the carbohydrates the processed flours and sugars as part of that although if you go to a deli counter and buy some ham you'll be surprised to know that it's got sugar in it uh if you go to a yeah, health food yeah, store right right you know a health food store has a lot of organic junk food and and that stuff you want to avoid as well and so all you know all the retailers have jumped on the bandwagon selling junk food because it's an easy sell it's cheap and you don't have to convince people to buy it and um they make a a, a better uh, dollar on it than selling other things and people are addicted sugar addiction is a very serious problem and to just say okay i don't want you eating any sugar anymore is easy to do and and a patient may say oh sure i, I understand say, yeah. that yeah but you know, by day two of not having that, they start getting the shakes. And, oh yeah, and eight and, times more addictive than cocaine. Yeah, so it's a it's a tough thing to get off. It's just like cigarettes, and the the methods that are used in the industry to sell junk food are the same methods that big tobacco used back in the fifties and sixties. So when I first started practice, I would give people a whole list of things. Okay, I've examined you, I, you know, we've evaluated all these things. And here are all the things you need to do. And I give them a list of, you know, exercise this way and do that and monitor your heart rate and eat, eat these foods and don't eat those foods and manage your stress. Don't, you know, don't say yes to what, all that stuff. And they were overwhelmed. And so they didn't do anything. And I realized I needed to to get right to the most important thing, sometimes the most important single thing. And the most important single thing for most people is to get off junk food because everything else you try to do is not going to work very well if you don't get off junk food. Okay. And so junk food, the, the simplest way to put it is if it has a lot of sugar or like refined carbs. So most of my listeners know like yeah, it's it's uh, it's more healthy. We should be eating more more whole foods. Obviously, um, vegetables and and nuts and seeds and and things like that. I want to ask you a couple of questions really quick, and and then we have to wrap up. But um, I'm just curious about your take on fruit. Fruit is not a refined carbohydrate, but the people that are really serious about eating tons of fat and not much carbs will will even say don't eat fruit. What's your take on fruit? I think there's two two issues. One, you've got to figure out your tolerance. And I have something called a two-week test where you can evaluate yourself over a two-week period. But the problem with fruit is that they're making things sweeter from a genetic standpoint. So the the watermelon, the grapes, the pineapple is a whole lot sweeter than way back when scientists didn't start manipulating those foods and so we need to be careful about uh, and i tell people to avoid watermelon and grapes uh, dried fruit pineapple uh, those foods are very sweet and if you're trying to you know if you're sensitive to carbohydrates you can't eat any of those and you more than likely can't eat a lot of fruit period today i <clears throat> my fruit intake is very minimal I eat a lot more vegetables, no potatoes or corn, but a lot of a lot of vegetables and very little fruit, mostly berries. So it, it's a very individual thing. Some people are more insulin resistant 
than others. And as we age, we get more insulin resistance. So um, people need to determine what their what their limits are. Got it. Heavy cream. I know that you are a proponent of it. I will say that I've seen some people in practice um, that can they can consume things like like yogurt. You know, I don't know. The fermentation seems to to be easier on them, but certain things that have cream in them, like some people can do dairy as long as it's there's no cream. Some people do cream and then like, boom, they're getting migraines or something like that. I'm curious, uh, tell me about dairy and heavy cream in two minutes or less. I think the problem with dairy in general is that there are healthy cows and unhealthy cows. The healthy cows uh, are the smaller cows, the brown Swiss and the jerseys, and they make a healthier uh, milk. Uh, the big corporate cows, I call them, the black and white cows, are very, <laughs> the uh, they're very unhealthy. They make an unhealthy uh, milk. Cream in the store actually has a lot of milk in it. Um, the cream I have has, you know, it doesn't pour. You have to spoon it out. So it's, it's almost all fat. And that's really the difference. And if people want to put cream in their coffee and they're sensitive to milk, they might want to put butter instead because it'll it'll be much better for them. And, and if you're sensitive to a food, then obviously you don't want to eat it. Speaking of butter in coffee, a lot of people have heard of bulletproof coffee at this point. Um, I heard somewhere that you put more than just uh, butter and coconut oil into your coffee. Is that true? Yeah, I have a recipe called Phil's Fat Burning Coffee. It's, <laughs> it's on my, my website. And it's what I have every morning, which is an egg yolk, um, a bunch of that unpourable butter and um, maybe a, a couple of tablespoons and then a, a tablespoon or more of coconut oil. And I blend it up and it's like the best cappuccino you've ever had. That's awesome. So let's see. One last question about barefoot, uh, going barefoot. Do you ever think or talk about grounding uh, you'll have to tell me what you mean by grounding. That word has uh, come like, and gone over the years quite a bit. Right, right. I think mostly it's thought of as sort of an esoteric idea, but I've seen some benefit just to uh, what I attribute to ion exchange with the earth, like your positively charged molecules or your cations that get absorbed or that are in your system, e either from your diet or from, from your own metabolism, stress, that type of thing. When you stand on the earth, just like out on the lawn or, or on the beach or what have you, your body is able to uh, disseminate some of those cations or those positively charged molecules into into the earth or like if you're in the rain like the rain will really help to pull those those positively charged molecules out and and i'm just curious if if that was ever part of your mindset in in uh, as far as like what why barefoot is good yeah it boy it opens up a whole topic that could be a whole different podcast um oh it Absolutely. I'm just curious if... Uh, well, in, in short, that, it has, you know, there's certainly a relationship with being, you know, having your bare feet on the, on the bare earth, which a lot of people never do. They're always on concrete or a carpet or something artificial, typically. And being on the bare earth with your bare feet is an amazingly wonderful experience, like being in the rain. 
so yeah, I think that that's there's something to be said for that. I don't think we really know exactly what's going on, which doesn't mean it's not true or not helpful. But um, when one experiences it, they want to keep doing that. Okay, enough said. I, I appreciate it. Where can people find out more about you, Phil? Well, my website is philmaffetone.com. And uh, we have a new website that makes it easier to find the, the many, many articles that are that are there. The, the two most recent books are the big book of endurance training and racing, and which is yellow, and then the red book, which is for kind of general health and fitness, the big book of health and fitness. Okay, very cool. With your permission, I will have some show notes for people. I'll include your fat-burning coffee recipe and a link to your website and some other cool stuff. You can find that at drchrisfrickman.com slash maffetone. And maffetone is spelled M-A-F-F-E-T-O-N-E. Is that correct, Phil? Correct. Okay, awesome. And by the way, if you if you drink Phil's fat burning coffee, it doesn't work if you have a donut with it. Right. Away from sugar. <laughs> exactly. Away from sugar. Because if you're not burning that fat, it's just gonna go into storage. Okay. Man, I might have to have you on again because I still have questions, but I gotta get off the phone <laughs> and I know you have stuff to do too. So thank you so much again for your time, Phil. Thank you, Chris. Visit drchrisfrickman.com for more cutting-edge content, including nutrition and detoxification advice, unique fitness videos, and more.